What's up, Mopar enthusiasts? Happy New Year, and welcome to episode number nine. Let's kick off the first show of 2020 with Project Car of the Week, a listener story, and the first Direct Connections episode. For those new to the show, Direct Connections are special editions of this show that are free-flow conversations with Mopar enthusiasts from all walks of life. I want to get to the roots of people's Mopar enthusiasm, and Direct Connections is how we're going to get there. I decided to introduce Direct Connections to you the best way that I know how, and that's by telling you my own Mopar story. You've heard the story of my dart and the story of my truck. Now I want to share the story of what actually sparked my love for Mopars, because I feel that for this show to be successful, you need to have a good idea of who I am and why I do the Mopar-related things that I do. So with that being said, you are listening to the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth. And I am your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter, and this is Talking Mopars. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. All right, folks, we made it. It is 2020 a new decade, and a whole new year to crank out episodes of your favorite podcast, Talking Mopars. (laughs) I am really excited about what's in store for this show for this year, um, the things we're going to talk about, the people we're going to talk to and have conversations with. This is going to be really fun, and I'm happy that you're here joining me. You know, hey, let's not waste any time. Let's cut the fat. Let's Get right into it. Let's get this show on the road and let's talk a project car. This week's project car was an eBay find and it just so happens to be one of my favorite cars, not just because I own one, but because they're cool. A 1968 Dodge Dart. So this car is an abandoned race car project. At least that's what it looks like to me. Maybe the guy just lost interest in it. But whatever the case, it's an unfinished project car, and it's set up for drag racing. So, or at least it's headed in that direction. So this is a 1968 Dodge Dart Superstock Hemi clone. It's got fiberglass front fenders, two sets of doors, looks like a Dana rear end with a four-link, strange brakes, strange axles, manual steering column. The seller says that most of the trim is included with the car, except for it's missing the windshield trim. It's got the 68 dart grille, 68 dart taillights. It also comes with two pieces of 4x8 sheet metal. My guess is to finish off the interior and all the tin work. And it looks like the seller is going to throw in anything else that he may have forgotten to list with the car. It goes on to say that this car is a race car only. Now... It's set at a buy-it-now price of $8,500, and, you know, is it a good buy? I'm not quite sure. I would have to see the car in person, but based on looks alone, it's pretty much just a uh, shell with a roll cage with hogged-out rear wheel wells to fit bigger tires, and it's tubbed. You know, it's got some stuff going for it, and it's also got some stuff that it really needs addressed. Like, is the cage even up to... NHRA specs, you know, how was the car built? These are a lot of questions that you need to ask when you go and look at these cars, these unfinished race cars, or if you're considering one. I am a fool for these. I love seeing unfinished race cars because I'm like, oh, cool, all the hard work's done. In this case, there's still a lot of hard work left. But if someone wants to get a little bit of a head start on a dart, then I think it's a it's a good buy for somebody that's looking for a race car. If you're looking for more of a street car, you might want to shy away from something like this because it's set up for drag racing. So if you're going to spend $8,500, I'm sure you can find a decent driver quality dart that maybe it has a slant six in it, you know, but it's pretty clean and you can always yank the slant and throw in, you know, a big block or a small block, whatever you want. 
you don't always have to get a race car. And I think a lot of the time people, you know, they see street outlaws on TV and they're like, oh, I got to do that. So they go and they buy a race car, you know, uh, that hasn't been finished yet. And then they get in way over their head. That's probably what I would do. You know, if I didn't have my projects that I have now and I had some money burning a hole in my pocket and a car came up like this dart and it already had a roll cage in it and it was already tubbed out, you know, if I didn't know any better, I probably would just buy it based on cool factor alone, but I do know a little bit better. So if I ever go and look at an unfinished race car, then I'm really going to look at the craftsmanship and the quality of the welds and the quality of the work involved in the car because the seller could have just started the project and got in over his head, realized he had to change a bunch of stuff and thought, you know what, I'm going to cut my losses here. The car is nowhere near done and I have a bunch of money invested. So it may be easier for him just to say, you know what, screw it. I'm going to sell this car and then just go buy something and start over again. You have to watch for that kind of stuff when you're going and looking at these project cars because you never really know who built it. You know, that's kind of scary when you're talking about safety equipment like a roll cage and you don't know who built it. Then you've got, you know, how do they got good welds or do they have experience building race cars? Do the welds have good penetration? You know, last thing you want is to roll a car that has a shoddy roll cage in it. First of all, you probably want to pass tech inspection, but let's just say you weaseled your way through, got on that starting line, and you rolled the car and you had a shoddy cage. Guess what? Not only can a cage save your life, but it can also kill you. So those are things you have to keep in mind when looking at race cars like this or either X race cars or future race cars, depending. But that still doesn't take away from the fact that this car is cool. If you were to go look at it and you're looking at the cage and you're like, wow, this is actually really well built. Maybe it just wasn't painted. Then, you know, you're saving a couple grand. And then you've got the suspension set up and, you know, anything else, all the little extras included with the car. Like in this case, he's got some fiberglass fenders. Those definitely aren't cheap. When you're looking at project cars, you really have to consider it as a whole. You know, I'm kind of a fool in the way that I would go look at this car and just think, oh my God, look how cool this race car is. Everything else is like an afterthought. I would hope that if myself or anybody else was going to hand over $8,500, you know, on an unfinished project, that you'd at least look it over really well. Maybe bring a friend, you know, a second set of eyes is never a bad thing. But I really like this dart. You know, I would have to see it in person to kind of determine if it's something that I wanted to get into or if it looks like there's a lot of work that needs to be redone and I might as well start fresh with a much cheaper car, a much cheaper shell, and then go from there. Not a bad car. I just thought it was cool looking. Um, in the picture, it actually shows an overhead shop crane. It looks like it's, um, you know, a Hemi's hanging by it right in the engine bay of the dart. So. <laughs> a good sales tactic like this could be you <laughs> but not a bad car i wish the guy luck with the sale i hope it's set up good and that somebody gets a good start to a race car out of it that that would be really cool because i love dodge dart super stock cars and the 68 hemi dart is also one of my top mopars of all time along with the barracuda they're just so cool Hemi A-bodies, any A-body with a Hemi is cool in my book. So, cool dart. Check it out on eBay. It's not hard to find. Just look up 1968 Dodge Dart Superstock, and you'll probably run across it. So, if you're looking for a little fun at the track and a little fun at the garage first, because you're probably going to be building this car for a few years before you even get it to the track, this might be a good deal. So, go check it out on eBay. It's still going to be up for another 29 days. It's got 52 views per hour, which is seems high. Um, seven people are watching it. So it also has the make offer option. So on eBay, you can do auctions, buy it now, or you could have a buy it now, but also a make offer option, which tells me that this guy will take less than $8,500 or else he wouldn't even put the make offer button there. So. Who knows what you could get this thing for? You might be sitting on a potential real cool deal. You might go, you know, let's see if this guy will take five. And 
lo and behold, he's like, I really need to get rid of this thing. It's taking up space in my garage. Yes, I'll take 5500 And then you eat that extra 500 and, you know, you call it a day and you bring your race car home, your $5,000 race car. So keep that in mind. Cool car. That's all I got to say about that. I would love if my dart was built to look like a super stock, but I just feel, I would feel like an imposter because mine is a 69. And, you know, looking at the pictures of this car, he's including these fiberglass fenders and they're actually for a 69 because they have their rectangular marker lights. If it's just a race car, who cares? And that's that. Cool dart. This week's listener story comes from a gentleman named Arthur, and Arthur is from Sydney, Australia. And before I get into Arthur's story, let me just say that I feel very bad for the people in Australia affected by the fires. I'm so sorry for all my friends down there. I hope that you guys get that situation handled and that you guys can bounce back from that because it's devastating. I've seen pictures online, and it looks like the apocalypse down there. It's really scary. Uh, I know that we had some crazy wildfires here in California and I'm up in Washington and we get some wildfires, but nothing like that. Australia is insane. The stuff in California was insane. And I hope you guys can recover from that. This is Arthur's story. Hi, Chris. I'm a listener to your podcast and enjoy the vast subjects you discuss. My name is Arthur and live in Sydney, Australia. I've been a muscle car guy for as long as I can remember and had various Aussie cars in my youth. Getting married at a young age, there was no extra money for muscle cars. That is until about 15 years ago when I got the bug again to get myself a muscle car. I looked and looked at many iconic Australian muscle cars, but just couldn't find or feel a connection with any of them. I looked at over 30 cars over 18 months, but couldn't get that wow factor. I was constantly on car sites looking for the one that would wow me. Anyhow, after many hours of looking, I stumbled onto a, what I thought was a Barracuda. I thought, wow, that's unique in Australia. So I gave the number a call. The guy I called told me the boss was out and he would call me back as there was no photos of the car. I started to Google Cuda and loved what I saw. A few hours later, the owner called me back and told me that the actual car he was selling was a Roadrunner, not a Cuda. I had no idea what the hell a Roadrunner was, so I called my brother and he said, if you don't buy it, I will. Gee. Must be something special about this car, if he was saying that. So, I rang the owner back and told him I'd come see the car on the weekend. Well, I instantly fell in love, and what he failed to mention was it was a convertible. I put a deposit on the car right then and came back a week later to pick it up. Once I brought it home, I did a small restoration tidying up the car and enjoyed it for seven years of cruising and drag racing over that time. I decided five years ago that the car deserved a ground-up restoration. One reason was... It was not the factory color, so I wanted to bring it back to its original B5 blue color. It's undergone a nut and bolt restoration. I put the original 383 motor to the side and built a 522 cube monster. Everything is new on the car, and I am almost finished now, and it's come out spectacular. This 1969 Roadrunner convertible is one of two known to be in Australia. My friends have now all got the Mopar bug. Cars in our group includes two A12 cars, one Roadrunner, and one Super B a 68 GTX factory 4-speed Hemi, a 66 Charger factory 4-speed Hemi car, a 1970 Challenger V-Code 4-speed car, and two big block 68 Chargers, to name a few. I'm so lucky to have stumbled upon such a rare bird, and I can't wait to get it back on the road, hopefully in three to four weeks. Regards, Arthur. Arthur, what a cool story. It sounds like uh, you've got some really cool friends. (laughs) The amount of cars that I didn't realize existed in other parts of the world is remarkable. I really want to have an episode or episodes on Mopars from other parts of the world, because I know you've got some really cool ones down there, aside from the cars that you guys have imported from the United States. And I think shedding some light on some of the Mopars of the world would be really fun. Your Roadrunner sounds pretty cool. And it sounds like you've got a little crew of some really cool cars down there, so that's awesome. It's good to know that the Mopar community is worldwide, and I'm so interested in cars that are in other parts of the world that are Mopars. Like in Brazil, they have a Charger that is like early 70s that looks just like a Dart, but it has styling cues of a Charger... And it's also got like a phantom grill. 
that it's it's just a really cool car. And then in Australia, you guys have like you've got some really cool Valiants down there, and I just I just really want to get into the Mopars of the world because a lot of those cars, many people in the United States don't even know exist. So it would be fun to talk about them and kind of, you know, increase the knowledge base of Mopar enthusiasts, even here in the States and other parts of the world. I think that'll be really fun. But Arthur, thank you for submitting your story. It sounds like your Roadrunner is an absolute monster. Very cool. I would love to see if you guys have any pictures of all your Mopars in one place in Australia. I think that'd be a pretty cool picture. So if that exists, email it to me or share one with me on Facebook or something because that's really cool. And I would love to go to Australia someday. It just looks fun. So I didn't realize there were so many cool Mopars down there. But now that I know, maybe there's a cool event I could come to someday and just you know, get a feel for the Mopar culture down there. That would be really, really fun. And that's actually a goal of mine is to take this show on the road someday. I would love to be able to travel to different parts of the country, different parts of the world, and talk to other Mopar enthusiasts and, you know, really get a feel for how Mopars are impacting people's lives here and abroad. That would be awesome and that's that's a goal of mine that I don't know will ever be realized or not but I'm definitely striving for something like that. I'm probably going to start locally and then kind of branch out as I go. So I'll start with local shows and then slowly start widening the circle until I start covering more ground and I also work a day job. I actually drive a garbage truck for a living, so it's hard for me to get time off and when I do a lot of it is dedicated for my family, which is understandable, but I hope in the future I can find time to make my way to other places to experience the Mopar culture elsewhere. But thank you, Arthur, for sharing your story. And like I said earlier, I hope that you guys can bounce back and that not too much life is lost in the fires in Australia. Godspeed, my friend. Welcome to the first edition of Direct Connections. This is going to be interesting because I have never actually shared the story of exactly how and why I became a Mopar enthusiast. My dad can largely be credited for being responsible for my love of cars and Mopars. He's never heard me talk about this, and my wife hasn't heard the whole story either, and my best friends have never even heard this story. So here is how my obsession with cars, specifically Mopars, came to be. Enjoy. The first few years of my life were spent in Mopars, but not the ones you would typically expect. I didn't actually grow up around Mopar muscle cars. By the time I was born in 1985, my dad's 69 Dodge Dart was long gone. So instead of an A-body Mopar, I grew up around two Mopars that would shape how I feel about transportation for the rest of my life. My dad traded in his Dodge Dart for a brand new black 1975 Tradesman cargo van. And he became a vanner. He went from cruising in his dart, you know, going to street races and just cruising around having a good time, to trading that in, getting a van, a cargo van, to join the van craze. So he customized that van from the ground up. Porthole windows, louvers, a big spoiler on the back that um, it had a... Uh, awning that came out of it. <laughs> it was a really cool looking spoiler. Fender flares, sunroof, crushed velvet interior with shag carpet, tinted windows, big side pipes, and appliance steel spoke wheels. Come to think of it, I said on the episode where I talked about my dart that my dad's car, his dart, had reverse craggers on it, but now that I think about it, I believe they were actually appliance steel spokes. That's that. I just wanted to clear that up in case somebody went and looked at the pictures and, you know, <laughs> did some fake news reporting on me. So he actually had appliance steel spokes on his. I do have Craigers for mine. That van was sold to my Uncle Ray, rest in peace, Unc, a few years after I was born. And I spent a lot of time cruising around to van fairs with my dad in that van. I will never forget those. I still dig the boogie vans to this day. And Maybe if my wife can get past the whole creeper van stigma, 
I'll get one someday. So let's talk about some of the other Mopars of my youth. In 1985, when I was born, my dad set out to get a sports car. He had already built his van, and I think he just wanted to have some fun again behind the wheel because vans aren't that nimble. And I think he just wanted a fun little sports car because at the time he was taking me. So we live in Western Washington. Uh, at the time we were living in Seattle and my mom lived in Eastern Washington. So every weekend my dad was driving across the mountains and he needed something that was reliable and good on gas or better on gas than um, any van that was going over there or anything like that. So he ended up getting a black 1985 Dodge Daytona Turbo Z. It had louvers just like the van. And funny enough, louvers are making a comeback. I've been seeing a lot of these cars running around with louvers on them, including Mopars. So I think that's pretty funny. And I guess it just goes to show that history does in fact repeat itself. The Turbo Z was black with the red pinstripe sunroof. It had the louvers, like I already said, a manual transmission, and my favorite part of the car, Chrysler's electronic voice alert system. If you don't know what the electronic voice alert was in Chrysler cars of the 1980s, look it up on YouTube. The car had a robotic 80s voice that would, I mean, think Knight Rider, okay? Uh, and I'm not kidding. <laughs> so it has this 80s robotic voice that would alert you to things like, low oil pressure, low fuel, uh, low windshield washer fluid, and it would tell you to fasten your seatbelts, and it would even thank you for doing so. You have to understand that. So, it would say, like, warning, your oil pressure is low. Warning, (laughs) you know? So, it was hilarious. Like, thinking back, so 80s, like, so 80s. But at the time, you have to understand that as a kid, this was nothing short of magic. This was a talking car. My dad owned Knight Rider. <laughs> Only this was cooler because it was a Dodge Daytona Turbo Z. I remember bragging to the kids at school that my dad had a talking car, and they all laughed and said I was full of crap. How dare they? I knew what I knew, and I knew it was true. The fact that they didn't believe me made the car even more special to me. My dad must have had the coolest car on earth that nobody else had. My dad clocked over 100,000 miles in that car basically in three years from all the weekend trips to visit my mom a couple hundred miles away. How he logged that many miles is a long story, but it involves. I spent a large portion of my youth on the weekends driving in that car, in the backseat, you know, speeding. I remember getting pulled over in that car. I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. I was standing up in the back seat, and we got pulled over. And, you know, hey, hey, Dad, make sure I'm sitting down with my seatbelt on at least, <laughs> you know. But, you know, it was a different time then. Road tripping is definitely in my blood, and I love it. And I think a lot of that stems from all the time spent in the backseat of that Daytona. So it definitely holds a a soft spot in my heart because I spent so much time in it, you know? Here's a funny memory. A few years after the Daytona was traded in on something more practical for our weekend road trip, so a conversion van that my dad bought, uh, I was in second grade and there was a show and tell for the class. Now, mind you, we hadn't had the car for a while at this point. And I insisted on bringing a picture of the Dodge Daytona Turbo Z to school. And this is second grade for show and tell. I just wanted to show off how cool the car was. And I had my whole spiel down. I was going to explain why my dad's old car, the Turbo, that we no longer had, was cooler than any of the cars those dorks could possibly even imagine. (laughs) This car was out of the future. It talked, for God's sakes. I had a great case to make, and I did just that to about 20 blank stares. No one gave a rip about my story or my dad's car or anything like that. In fact, I remember everyone, including my teacher, Miss Davis, looking at me confused. Everyone else had brought in toys, pets, little trinkets, and knickknacks, and I brought in a picture of my dad's old car. 
it was at that point that I realized that they were all dumb and I was a car guy. I didn't even know that term existed then. All I know is that my enthusiasm for anything that could be driven started as a young boy and followed me into manhood. I was absolutely obsessed with semi-trucks and cars. It's no wonder nearly three decades later I would not only still be a car guy, but that I'd also be driving a truck for a living. I'm a commercial vehicle driver. (laughs) I guess uh, it was destiny. There are two other Mopars that were in my life that had an impact on my youth. And the first was a 1985 Chrysler LeBaron that my grandma, who I knew as Nana, drove all the way up to the point that she could no longer drive. We even traveled halfway across the country in that car. I spent a lot of time in that Chrysler as a kid. Next to the Kenworth I would drive later in life, that LeBaron took me to more places in this country than any other vehicle in my life. I was never too fond of it, though, but I associated my grandma with that car, so in a way, it was very special to me, and my dad still has it. (laughs) As I grew up and gained more knowledge, I realized what a POS that LeBaron was because it had a 2.6 Mitsubishi engine in it. What a disappointment that was. What garbage it was. Here's a funny story that I'm a little nervous telling it just because I I feel like my grandma's listening to this right now and she would turn over three times in her grave if she heard it. Um, The only other person that knows this story, I think, is my friend that was in the car with me when this happened, but I don't remember which friend it was. So I was a broke kid with a minimum wage job at a local independent tire store and my car had broke down. So I needed to borrow a car. So I told Nana that I would fill up her car with gas if she let me borrow it. And while out and about with this friend of mine, I pull up to a stoplight in front of my old high school. And if I remember this story correctly, a punk in a station wagon pulled up next to us. And I looked over and I was joking with my friend. I was like, you know... Whatever I said, I think it was like, oh, I'm going to run this guy, you know, just joking around. And when that light turned green, me and the guy in the other car both left the line in what can only be described as the complete opposite of what would be considered a hard launch in drag racing. I gave that POS 2.6 everything my right foot could give it. And that POS gave nothing back. (laughs) After the slowest drag race in history. (laughs) I pulled into the gas station and put a few bucks of the cheapest 87 octane regular unleaded that I could. And then I returned it unscathed back to Nana. Like now that I think about it, here's a memory. The LeBaron is the first car that I ever actually pumped gas in when I was a, a young kid. Nana had actually been the one to teach me how to pump gas. And she did it when I was like, gosh, I don't remember how old I was, but I was young. So, good job, Dad. You let Grandma teach your son how to pump gas. (laughs) Did I say that I returned her car unscathed? That's not entirely accurate. Oddly enough, after I borrowed the car, it never ran right again. And Nana attributed it to me not putting middle-grade fuel in it. So, (laughs) she had this theory that she could only put 89 octane in this old LeBaron because that's the only gas it could run good on. (laughs) And let's be honest, the car never ran good at all. (laughs) But she blamed me for ruining her car, (laughs) because I put the bottom of the barrel 87 regular unleaded gas in it. I ruined it. And sadly, Nana passed away a few years ago, and she never got to hear this true story. So... If she's listening, Nana, I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure I jacked up your car racing that station wagon. My dad's going to hear this story, and he still has her car. And the engine is still messed up. Oops. (laughs) Sorry, Dad. So that's one of the other Mopars, if you can even call it that, with that garbage Mitsubishi under the hood. Um, That car, although I despised it in some ways, I cherished it in others because my grandma and I were so close when I was a kid, I was always in that car. 
you know, and I just, when I think about that car, I think about her and that's what would make it hard for me to get rid of. But at the same time, I hated that car so much. And my memory of my grandma is so much more (laughs) than that Chrysler, the Baron. But when I look at it, I just, I just remember her and all the funny little things that would happen to us in that car. Uh, I could go on for a while, but (laughs) if you knew my grandma, you would understand how funny she could be unintentionally. She was one of those grandmothers who was unintentionally funny. (laughs) You know what I mean? But moving on, the other Mopar that I would loathe (laughs) throughout my early to late teens was my dad's 1988 Plymouth Sundance. The car always had a weird smell, and it wasn't a bad smell. It was just a weird one that, for some reason, would give me headaches when I was in that car. I have no idea why. It was just a thing. It also had that typical Chrysler peeling paint syndrome. It looked like this car was a spotted POS. The paint was peeling off in such a way that it looked as though a flock of birds all flew over the car at the same time and took a dump right on the car. I dreaded my dad dropping me off at school in that POS. I dreaded it. He eventually got it repainted and surprise, I still hated it. I will say this though. I actually thought it was going to be my first car long before, like it was a couple years before I started driving. I was already, as a kid, I wanted nothing more than to drive. That's what I wanted to do. I Going back to my grandma's LeBaron, There was a little toy store, kind of like a weird shop um, down the street from our house. Some of you in Seattle will know this name. It's Archie McPhee's. Back in the 90s, Archie McPhee's was within walking distance from my house because I live right by Gasworks Park. And I walked down to Archie McPhee's one day and they had this box full of steering wheels, like random steering wheels. And I wanted to drive so bad that I ran home. And told my grandma, I have to have this steering wheel. I have to have this steering wheel. And she ended up taking me back down to the store, bought me the steering wheel. And every day for the rest of the time that my grandma took me to school in the morning, I would sit in the passenger seat with this steering wheel in my lap. And I would mimic everything she was doing as she was driving. (laughs) Thinking back, that's a really good memory. I, I haven't thought about that in years. But yeah, I would I would basically drive to school without driving to school. I would sit there and I would mimic everything she did. I when people drove cars, I watched with intent because I wanted to do the same thing so bad. But that's just a interesting memory from the LeBaron. Going back to the Sundance. I thought that this was going to be my first car and you know, sometimes you just have to come to grips. Because <laughs> I was like, at the time, I was like, you know, I can't have anything cool. You know, I don't have any kind of money like that. And if I can get this car, you know, I figure out something to do to make it cool, couldn't I? So in a desperate attempt to make it even remotely drivable to my standards, I searched and searched online to find out what I could do to make it tolerable. And that's actually the first time I learned about Carol Shelby's involvement with Chrysler in the 1980s. I was like 13 or 14 at the time, and the internet was still pretty young, and I discovered the Shelby CSX. I really want to do a high-performance heritage episode of this show on the 1980s front-wheel drive Mopars in the future, which I know some of you Mopar muscle guys may not be fond of, but I hope you'll find a way to power through it with me because I love those cars and I know a lot of you listening do, and you know me, I'm a Mopar guy, and I don't discriminate, so we're going to talk about those cars too, and I actually, my dad and I have a tiny little collection of 80s front-wheel drive turbo Mopars. We have an 84 Dodge Daytona Turbo Z, an 87 Shelby CSX, a 87 Dodge Daytona Shelby Z and an 88 Dodge Daytona Shelby Z. And then my dad just picked up an 86 Dodge Daytona Turbo Z um, CS. So that's cool. 
Um, so we kind of have a little fetish for turbo Mopars. They're fun cars to drive. And those are all projects on the back burner with the exception of my dad's 86 Daytona. Uh, he drives that every once in a while. It's got T-tops. It's a pretty cool little car for the 80s. But going back to the Sundance and how I almost got stuck driving it, I was doing all this research and then I came across the Shelby CSX and I immediately noticed the difference between that car and the Sundance that I was thinking I was going to end up with. The big difference being that the CSX was a two-door and the Sundance was a four-door, but there were similarities in certain parts of the car. So immediately I was like, I need to get that hood with that, you know, that bulge in it, that turbo hood, and I need to get that grill because the Shelby CSX grill transforms the front of the car. And I was looking for those parts. And to make a long story short, I never actually ended up getting the Sundance as a first car. In fact, it would be 14 years before I actually had a classic Mopar to call my own. During those dark days, I owned many different makes and models because it always seemed that Mopars were out of my reach, both due to price and space. I simply had no place to take on a Mopar project. Thinking back, I'm glad things played out the way they did because the path that I was on has led me here talking to you. So as much as I wish I could have had, you know, a cool Mopar back then, I'm not sure I'd be here talking to you right now if I did. So I guess it all worked out in the end. I didn't have a Mopar when I was young for lack of trying, I'll tell you that much. When my dad would tell me stories about cruising in his dart and going to Golden Gardens to attend the street races in the early 70s, I longed for having experiences like those. I felt like I had grown up in the wrong era, and I say that all the time. I still feel that way to this day when I see pictures from, you know, the golden era of drag racing and, you know, the old-timey street races. That stuff to me, I just think, God, it must have been so cool to be able to go to that stuff and be alive during the heyday of classic muscle cars. That must have been a crazy experience, and I love talking to people that have had those experiences and that share their stories. When I was a kid, my dad and I would... You know, our father-son bonding time was going to look at cars. So it was, I had so much fun doing it that I was always on the hunt to find cars for my dad and I to go look at. So I was looking at classified sections, auto traders, and anytime I found something cool that was local to us, I would show my dad and we would find a way to go look at it. That was always such a good time for me. And the only thing that, was a bummer about it is it could get disappointing because you know I was a kid and I had ulterior motives. I wanted every car that I took my dad to go see. The thing was is that my dad wasn't going to buy those cars. He just wanted to spend some time with me and go look at them and he thought that it was like our own little, you know, our own little thing where we would just go and look and he thought that we were under the understanding that we weren't taking any of them home and he was so wrong, because every car we went and looked at, I was like, well, why aren't we buying it? <laughs> and I mean, it, there was a couple of times we got into it pretty good because I was like, why do we go and look at these cars if you're not going to buy any of them? And, you know, that's when he kind of told me that, you know, I thought it was fun that we go and do this. And then I realized, oh, OK, I see. So once I realized where he was coming from, it was a little bit easier on my young psyche. <laughs> But there were a few Mopars that I looked at with my dad before I was even old enough to drive that had my dad bought any of them, they would have undoubtedly changed my path in life. But that never happened. My plan to get a Mopar while I was young and have it ready by the time I was 16 completely failed. And I, I, I tried so hard to get him to buy one of those cars for me. But here are some of the cars that we ran across that... I really wish I could have had. The one car that really sticks out in my mind was a brown 1970 340 Duster hidden in the back of a car lot called Detroit Auto Works on Aurora Avenue in North Seattle for $3,000. Um, some of you local to Seattle will know that dealership. They had a lot of hoopties, <laughs> but 
they had some nice cars every once in a while, but it wasn't like a high-end, you know, classic car dealership. Um, it was all outdoors. They didn't have an indoor showroom, and they were basically like driver-quality cars. So if I knew then what I know now, I would have been able to verify that it was, in fact, a legit 340 car. I remember seeing this car, the way their lot was set up, they had like this little bullpen, like paddock, and it was behind a fence to get to the back part of the lot. It was sandwiched in between two other cars, and I remember walking through the lot with my dad and glancing over and seeing the front end of this thing, and it had the blackout hood, the black treatment on the hood, uh, with the 340 wedge uh, decal on it, and I thought, oh my god, that's cool. So I ran over there to look at it, and it was the only brown car that I've ever seen, and at very first sight, I was like, oh, that is perfect for that car. That color is perfect. And I went over there and it had one of those um, hang tags in the uh, in the windshield hanging off the rearview mirror. And it said $3,000. And I looked at the car and, it, you know, thinking back, if I remember right, it was pretty clean for what it was. And for three grand back then, I remember my dad kind of thinking that that was a little bit too high of a price. And maybe it was. But the car, if I remember this right, had a split bench, a column shift automatic, and like I said, the blackout hood with the 340 wedge decal on it. Even in its dark brown color, I thought this car was badass. I thought about how different my early years of driving would have been had my dad bought me that car sometimes. And, you know, how fun it would have been to spend a couple years working on that car with him before I was old enough to drive. But that's not how the cards played out. And I never got that car. And I actually just recently, a dealership in Texas had the exact car. Maybe not the exact car, but the car that they had was a splitting image of the one that I saw in Seattle that day. And if I could have afforded that car, I would have bought it just because I missed out on that opportunity as a kid. And I hate missed opportunities. Two other cars that would have changed my history were a complete project 1968 Barracuda and a running and driving Formula S340 Barracuda that, if I remember right, was also a 68. Neither of those panned out for me either, so I would have to wait over a decade to realize my childhood dreams. But I like to think that everything happens for a reason, even if it sucks. I ended up waiting quite a long time to get my classic Mopars, but I have them now and I am happy. But let's go back to my younger years for a minute. Like most car enthusiasts, I learned all of my favorite words watching and quote-unquote helping my dad work on his vehicles when I was young. I learned every four-letter word in the book, and watching my dad work on cars and quote-unquote helping him was a very fond childhood memory right up there with going to look at cars with my dad. My dad and I have the strongest bond in the fact that we both love cars. Every time we get together, the subject always turns to cars, and I don't think that has ever changed. My dad was never obsessed with Mopars like I ended up becoming. He was just a car guy who just so happened to own a few Mopars along the way. He loves Mopars, don't get me wrong, but with me, the exception is that I tend to fixate and obsess over things. And the first Mopar muscle car that I saw that really changed my world was at that same dealership that the 70 Duster was at. Now, I don't remember how long before I saw that Duster, I saw this car, but... This dealership was one that my dad and I would frequent all the time just to see what they had on the lot. We would go there and just walk around and look at the cars. But one time we were there, I remember it was a little bit dark outside and all the street lights were shining down on the front line and the car was a 1970 Plymouth Cuda painted FJ5 limelight green. And I don't know if it was a real AAR or a clone, but I'll never forget it. The lights were shining down on it, and the green just stuck out like a sore thumb, and I was immediately, you know, like like a duck to water. I was over there looking at the car, 
and it was the first time that I ever stuck my head inside an old Mopar muscle car and took a whiff. And that changed my sense of smell forever because I'm a freak in the fact that I absolutely love the smell of an old Mopar muscle car. It seems like they all have the same smell. Maybe it's just me, but I absolutely love it. And I wish that you could buy Little Tree air fresheners that the scent was old Mopar. I'd buy them by the box. That's what a freak I am. But I'll never forget that car. I remember the price was like 10995 or something like that. And I remember just looking at my dad going, this is it. <laughs> that was another one of the cars where I was like, this is it, dad. Let's get this one. And again, leaving the lot disappointed. <laughs> so for some reason, my dad didn't, you know, I wish we would have test drove it. I don't know what my dad was thinking. I would have said, hey, let's get the keys to this thing and take it for a spin, you know, but it never got to that point. And that car is the one that made me understand because it was the coolest looking Mopar I had ever seen in person. It just, I don't know if it was the color or the car, but there's something about a green Barracuda that still to this day, every time I see an FJ5 Barracuda, I remember that car. And I remember that that was the car that sparked my absolute love for Mopar muscle cars. Because up until that point, I was only, you know, exposed to, you know, my dad's van and the Daytona and the LeBaron and the Sundance. I had never been that close to a high impact colored Mopar muscle car. And it was so cool. But like I said, I opened the door, stuck my head in there. And for some reason, I just took a big whiff and my senses came alive. And I'll never forget that car. And I will never forget that smell. My dart has that smell. It's crazy. Um, every once in a while, I will go over to my dart and I will take a big whiff of it. I'm just kidding. I don't do that. But it does have the same smell. And I think that's funny. But like I said, I tend to fixate on things. And that CUDA definitely cemented my love for Mopar muscle cars. It changed the way that I look at cars. And as time went on, the Mopars climbed in price, they got less obtainable, and, you know, I knew that it would be a long time. Uh, right there for a while, once I saw the prices of Mopar muscle cars and any Mopar that was classic, for that matter, I saw the prices just climbing and they were just getting further and further out of reach for me. And then, you know, life happened. I went out and uh, I met my wife or my future wife. And, you know, we were living in an apartment and I just had no place to work on a Mopar muscle car. So my dreams were halted for just a little bit. And fast forward to four years ago in 2015, I had always wanted a Mopar, but I was just never in the position to get one. And I finally got one. And that was uh, the story of my dart. If you haven't heard that story yet, go back to episode number four. And that's the story of how I obtained my first classic Mopar. 2015 was when I decided to let my freak flag fly and profess my love of Mopars to the world by starting a Facebook page called The Mopar Hunter. It was largely sparked by a somewhat famous 1969 Charger Daytona that sat parked in a driveway by the Alderwood Mall. Um, I was familiar with the car for many years as a kid, at least my entire high school career and probably a little bit longer. And I would go, I would check up on that car every once in a while and, you know, a few times a year. And I decided to start taking pictures and sharing all the cool Mopar stuff that I would run across just because I, you know, I saw Facebook pages and I got to be honest, not very many of my friends are Mopar guys. You know, I have a lot of Mopar friends now because of the Mopar Hunter page, but before the Mopar Hunter, uh, a lot of my friends are Ford guys, a couple of them are Chevy guys, um, some are import guys, and nobody was as enthusiastic about Mopars as myself. I have shown them how obsessed I am, and now anytime they come across a Mopar on the street or in somebody's yard or something like that, they always, I'm the first person that they get to, and they 
are excited to tell me about them. So I think that's really cool that I've built this brand that I'm the Mopar guy out of all my friends, you know, out of all the friends from my childhood that I'm the Mopar guy. So I think that's funny. And, you know, it's not a bad thing. I don't mind it. Even people at work are starting to go, oh, God, he's nuts. He's the Mopar guy, you know, so that's cool. I don't mind that at all. I am the Mopar guy. I am the Mopar hunter. Okay, let's not forget that. (laughs) I started the Mopar hunter page with uh, Mopar stuff I came across online or in real life, and I would use it as a way to document my first Mopar project. And things got out of hand, and a couple thousand posts later, here we are, talking on a podcast. How crazy is that? I finally have a couple classic Mopars, and my love and enthusiasm for them is stronger than ever. This is why I love listener stories, and why I chose to create this podcast, because everyone has a different story to tell, and they are all cool in their own right. If any of you who have sent in stories are like me, you probably struggled a little bit with not writing an entire book about it. (laughs) I could go on and on about why I love Mopar so much and keep telling stories, but my story is just one of many that shapes the Mopar culture. As Mopar enthusiasts, we all share the common bond of our love of Mopars, and I can't wait to hear your story, so as long as you keep sending them in, I'll keep sharing them. That's my story, folks, and I'm sticking to it. I plan to close every Direct Connections episode with a speed round of random Mopar questions for my guests. I'm going to be calling that the six-pack because it sounds cool and it gives me a reason to only ask six questions. The questions will be chosen by me and I hope this little closing segment or part of the interview will be as fun as I think it will be. I won't be doing the six-pack this time around, because it would be pretty lame if I asked myself the questions that I already know the answer to. So I will save that for the official first edition of Direct Connections. This was the unofficial first edition. So there you have it, folks. The first episode of 2020 is in the books, and you got a taste of Direct Connections. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Send in your stories. Keep them coming. And tell your Mopar-addicted friends about this show. And please don't forget, TalkingMopars.com. I am your host, Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopars. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.